Hi, welcome back to Quaker Faith and Podcast. Uh, this is Mackenzie, your host today. Micah is not with us right now. Uh, he has just accepted a new post as uh, a co-pastor at Berkeley Friends Church in California. So he is in the middle of a cross-country move, and we have a guest today of Sam Barnett Cormack. I hope I said that correctly, uh, from the UK. Hi, yep, yep, you got that right. Hello, everyone. Uh, we've been asked several times to have an episode about, specifically about non-theist friends, um, because we mention them from time to time, but neither Micah nor I is one anymore. And Sam is a very vocal non-theist friend online, so I asked him to join us. I'm glad to be here. Um, so I guess we should start with how do you define non-theism? Well, there's two ways for me to answer that. One is the really broad way I see it as a an analytical category, and the other is to talk about what I actually feel or believe or however you want to phrase it. Obviously, mm-hmm. that fits into the analytical category I would use. Um, and I say an analytical category because I don't ever want to tell someone what label they should be using. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's useful when you're looking at the huge range of beliefs among friends to be able to categorize just for that purpose of, of looking at the differences. So in the broad sense, it comes down to how I learnt from a, a rather eccentric religious education teacher uh, the idea of what theism is and there are a few different definitions out there but I've always stuck with the one I learned at school because it makes sense to me and seems quite useful Uh, and it's the idea of there being a theistic god or gods and a god is theistic if they have identity they are a being they have preferences wants desires and they are willing and able to act directly in our world. So I would categorize a view of God or whatever label you want to use as non-theistic if it doesn't meet all of those criteria. Mm-hmm. For me, per- right, I know this has been a point where, where we have discovered that we label things different, like that, like I used to be, I used to call myself pantheist, and I know that you would say that that is a non-theist way of thinking, and I would think of it as a theist one. I've spoken to pantheist friends who I would categorize their belief as non-theistic, and ones who I'd categorize as theistic. So, you know, pantheism Mm -hmm. is this idea that everything is God, to put it simply. Mm-hmm. And then the question there just becomes whether this gestalt entity of everything has a personality of its own that we can only, as the parts of that great thing, see part of. So for me, a theistic pantheist would believe that this universe god has a personality of its own independent of any of us, and has things it wants to see happen and is able to affect things within itself. 
whereas a, a non-theist pantheist uh, would see there being no independent personality of the Gestalt, um, might see it as a, a completely impersonal being that incorporates everything. Um, and there's a lot of fuzzy edges here. Um, and it can be very hard to talk about some things without, especially in Quaker experience, without ascribing the idea of will to the divine. Mm -hmm. Especially when we get into things like business meetings, Absolutely, right? absolutely. And the simplest way of explaining business method is that we are seeking to know the will of God so we can carry it out. It gets a little sticky when you don't believe that God has a will. Mm -hmm. But different people make sense of it in different ways. I think the common experience, the vast majority of non-theist friends, based on those I've spoken to and things I've read, would say that there is something when we have our business meetings that is guiding us. The question of whether that's will on the part of this thing that's guiding us, it's more difficult to say it's most easy to think of it as well but i personally think of it more as wisdom that when we make this connection with one another and with the divine we gain access to a wisdom that's beyond what any of us has on our own and that helps guide us to a course of action that is right and sometimes I've found that it seems that its idea of what's right might be different from ours, and we might not be aware of that difference. So we think our objective is one thing, and we meet together, we gather in the silence, and wait to be guided, and this wisdom shows us a course to take. And it turns out that this wasn't a good course towards the objective we thought we had, but it did work out incredibly well for an objective that we might not have considered that produces good results. Okay. So something that stuck out to me while, while you were talking is when you were talking about guiding. And to me, guiding being as it's, a, I mean, it's a verb with a direct object, right? So it makes me think, that, that's something that to me seems like it is an exercise of will. So to me, it's weird to think of there being a noun which guides but does not have will. Does it makes make sense? sense, but perhaps if one were to think of it as guide rails or even a, a sat-nav. <laughs> this... For the Americans, that's GPS. Doesn't mesh entirely well with what I was saying about the goal not being what you, not being not the goal not being what you thought the goal was. But set that bit aside to think of it this way: if you've got a sat nav, okay. you tell it where you want to go, <laughs> and it guides you there. <coughs> there was that hopefully. time that my my mother's um, GPS uh, didn't realize that they were on the surface level, not on the highway above, and told them to turn left, and they turned left onto a bike path. And went through a little tiny, tiny tunnel that was supposed to be for bicycles. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was once with someone who was following one of these, and it told them to turn, take the next right, um, and it didn't bother telling them that what appeared to be the next right was a one-way street. Yep, turned right into a one-way street and uh, on oncoming bus. Fortunately, there were parking spaces that could pull into and sort it out, but it was disconcerting. So, yeah, you can think of the spirit in that sense as a sat-nav that uh, is somehow smart enough to sometimes know where you should be going rather than where you want to go, which, let's face it, with the way some of these online companies are going now, might not be that far off uh, from reality. I know when I wake up, my phone is like, it's going to take you this long to get to meeting. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and sometimes it, it knows where I go. It knows I go to the meeting house on Sunday mornings, and this is what time I'm going to have to leave. There's some traffic on Georgia Avenue. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I was volunteering at something earlier this evening, and uh, my, my role there is mostly to uh, manage the spreadsheet with members' details and record who's been which weeks and so on. Um, and uh, the person who mostly runs the, uh, the, the, the event had recently got uh, a tablet to use because their laptop was getting a bit messy. Um, and uh, I'd never seen this feature before, but I opened up Google Drive to get at the spreadsheet. Um, and it, the one I wanted came up first with a little note under saying, you usually open this at about this time. Oh, my. Okay, then. <laughs> Which is helpful. But a little disconcerting. So, yeah, maybe the increasingly autonomous smart web uh, isn't that bad an analogy for uh, how I see the spirit. I hadn't thought of that until this conversation, but it, it kind of works. Well, I think you've noticed probably by now that I'm fond of using sci-fi analogies, so... I think I referred to the Ood brain from Doctor Who in a conversation with you recently. Yeah, yeah. And there are some elements to uh, to that that do match how I see the divine because fundamentally, the way I see it and the way I feel that all of these different ideas we as, as Quakers have can work together is whatever... God, divine, spirit, seed, whatever you want to call it, whatever it is, is fundamentally beyond our comprehension. Mm -hmm. So each of us will find some way of relating to it that works for us and helps us to connect. But the really important thing about how I see the divine is in that word, connect. I don't know if it's something that is, by and large, entirely internal to us. I know it's always there in me, but it could be something entirely external to me that just always has that presence in me, which would be a more traditional way of thinking about it. More of a sort of antenna, sort, antenna receiver sort of... Yeah, Whatever it is, though, I know that it's always there. I can always reach it if I can find the stillness. 
but that when I gather together with other friends and we are all doing that together, whether it's in a, a typical meeting for worship or in a meeting for worship for business or in a decently run committee meeting, I can feel that whatever it is in each of us is connecting and that our ability to perceive it and benefit from it becomes greater because of that sharing. And that's what's so fundamentally important to me about Quaker worship practices. I think this conversation means I'm going to use the uh, uh, antenna receiver thing uh, more because it just occurred to me that that sounds like uh, getting a whole bunch together and amplifying the signal. Yeah. Yeah, the analogy works perfectly well. And that's the beauty of it all, of course, is there are so many analogies we can use that fit some or all of different people's experience. But the analogies aren't the reality. Whatever the reality is, is so far beyond us that the only time we'll understand it is possibly... After death, if something happens, that's something I'm completely agnostic on. Um, maybe that will allow us to understand it. Maybe if there's anything to the uh, Dharmic religion's idea of enlightenment or uh, ascending to a different level of consciousness, maybe that would allow us to get closer to understanding it. But as we are now, all we've got is analogies, is metaphors, Metaphors are powerful. Metaphors can be wonderful things. But when you start mistaking the metaphor for the reality, that's when you end up with too much certainty and with inferring things from the analogy that aren't part of the fundamentals of it. Mm -hmm. I think mixing up metaphor versus reality is so for me that was what was actually make, making me continue to identify as atheist or non-theist when I first came to Friends because I had grown up with the you know the the Sistine Chapel ceiling version of theology right you got God is an old man he's up on a cloud that long beard that whole thing and and I couldn't believe in that you know it was like it's like, no, like that, that doesn't make sense. That it, that's not, I can't, I can't believe that. And, um, but the idea that like the pantheist idea that, that everything like that God is sort of a force that infuses all of creation. That was something that fit much better for me. And I was a lot more comfortable with that sort of idea than with the, old guy father thing. yeah and then at some point i i said to like i had started well i had left the meeting that i had been going to um because of personal stuff but i started going to um micah's thing and i was like is it okay if i come here when i'm not a christian and he's like yeah just you know as long as you're cool with the fact that we're gonna be reading a bible i'm like okay sure um but then he ended up explaining to me that uh, theolo or theologians don't talk about God as being the old cloud man. That's a metaphor, and there are a whole ton of other metaphors 
out there and you don't have to believe in the old guy on the cloud in order to believe to say that you believe in God. And I was like, oh. Yeah, and I, I have to say, among Christian friends, at least within the liberal Quaker world, I struggle to think if I've ever known anyone that I've spoken to enough to get an idea of how, what, how they really think about God who has actually been within 10 miles of the big beard in the sky model. It's <laughs> So one of the strengths of the fact that we accept non-theists where we do is that the people who are struggling with those traditional stereotyped understandings can have a space where they know they're not expected to see things that way because they're not expected to see things in any way. And I think there are some Christian friends I know who welcome non-theists largely because of the hope that they will come to see things in a way that works for them but is still broadly Christian. And I, I, I'm glad that they welcome I'm glad that they welcome non-theists. Um, I'm not sure I'm glad that that's the reason, but as long as they don't mind that it doesn't always work, that's fine. <laughs> I think... I think uh, I think there's certainly a... And, and I I know that I've said before... I don't know who's in your hearing, um, but I know that I've said before that my feeling is that when you first come to friends or, you know, to whatever... Faith community. If you if you're going from no faith at all to picking one, whether it's friends or something else, that you don't want to just end up staying in the same place. Like the point of coming to a faith community is supposed to be that there's going to be growth and change over time. So if you come in and just say, "Well, the thing that I already believe is." is fine and this is it and it never needs to change and I don't want anybody to try to influence any sort of change and that sort of seems like what's the point. Absolutely. And one sense? of the things that's been said to me a few times by not the most heavily Christian essentialist Quakers but people who are heavily in that direction that they feel that part of the definition of Quakerism should be Christianity I've said to me that um, I should wear my non-theism as long as I can, with obviously the reference to pen sword. Which is actually <laughs> it's pens. whether <laughs> however apocryphal it is, it's quite a nice little parable. But I, 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 I sat with this and reflected first time it happened, and said, certainly as long as you're where your theism, Christianity, whatever, as long as you can, as long as we're all open to the idea that our experience of the divine could change us in ways we cannot imagine, then it's all fine. I've known several people who came to Quakers as non-theists of one stripe or another, and who then became much more Christian, very interested 
in the figure of Christ, sometimes even going as far as to start to subscribe to relatively conventional Christian theology about uh, the, the substitutionary atonement and uh, the importance of the risen Christ and so on and so forth. But I was going to say that substitutionary atonement is pretty recent, but then it occurs to me it's a couple of decades older than Quakerism. So. Yeah, it's relatively conventional in a lot of the Christian world now. It's so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I've also known people who've made the opposite journey, who've come into Quakers being relatively conventional Christians, but there's been something that's drawn them to Quakers, whether it has been our affirmation of non-heterosexuality. I know one friend who told me that they came to Quakers because they wanted a Christian community where they could live openly and honestly. Or whether it's because they felt the need for some sort of more personal spirituality and they felt that having a preacher or particularly having a designated priesthood doesn't make sense to them anymore and they want to experience Christianity another way. But then from that process have developed a different understanding of God. Most of those people I've known have kept using the word God, but then when you start talking to them about it, they don't mean anything by it that most people would imagine, would imagine on hearing the word God. And that, 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 that understanding they have that's developed has become more non-theistic. Okay. Uh, but I, and I wonder whether they would call it non-theistic or if they wouldn't. I've known some who did use the label and some who didn't. So it's, yeah. And this is the thing when people are, when we're talking about these labels and people using it to identify themselves, mm-hmm. all of them are a shorthand and Everyone's got a slightly different version of the shorthands. Um, there are plenty of Christian Quakers out there who, if they explained their beliefs to someone from a relatively evangelical or relatively conservative, mm-hmm. theologically speaking, church, the person would say, right. and, uh, oh, that's not A Christian. lot of them would say that about Catholics and about Episcopalians, or, well, you're English, Anglicans. Um, <laughs> But actually, uh, I don't know if you saw, there was a recent Friends Journal article um, by Lauren Brownlee, who is a Quaker that lives, I don't know, 10 minutes from me. And she said that she was um, visiting in Ramallah in Palestine with a bunch of folks who turned out most of the rest of them were evangelicals. She was like the only Quaker in the group. And then they got to Ramallah Friends School. And that's when the evangelicals found out that Quakers aren't exactly like them when it comes to Christianity. And they have a little quiz with her. And they ask, <laughs> well, do you believe in an omniscient God? And she said, well, I don't not believe in one. And they kept asking her questions about theology that were uh, very orthodox and very sort of the particulars of the theology that you would find like in something like a creed. And she would just say, well, I don't not believe in that. And they're like, well, what makes you Christian? <laughs> like, where, where is, what? And, and she said, well, it's, it's Jesus. Like, I, I'm, you know, I, I know the story of Jesus and I'm interested in the story and in following the things he said. And that's what makes me Christian is, is that. 
and she there was the sort of the ending of it was that um they asked her something about like how her faith plays out and before she could answer one of the other evangelicals said that the justice at which point all the they said like like they they had picked they'd intuited it and then all the other evangelicals went oh okay we're on the same page Hmm. Yeah, and with that idea of the defining point of Christianity, the idea of learning from or following Christ, if that were a common conception, I could almost, almost well, and you know, call myself a Christian. Christian atheists, because they, they absolutely uh, atheist and non-theist Christianity is. Uh, so many people think of it as a contradiction in terms, but the, the, there's, there's a considerable community Bible out thing, there. Right? Thomas Jefferson, for anyone who's not aware, wrote a version, like he, he made an, a version of the Bible back, you know, in the 1700s, where the miracles aren't there. And like the idea of Jesus being divine isn't there. It's more about the sayings and teachings of Jesus, which I guess could make it almost sort of reverse engineering of what scholars call the Q source, which is the theoretical source of all of the uh, lessons Jesus gives in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke that don't show up in the, in the much shorter mark. Yeah, and, you know, I think there is a lot of great stuff in the teachings of Jesus, and there's some stuff that jars with me and that uh, I struggle with and I you know wonder everything else is so good and there's this bit that isn't for me and you start to think well maybe that was a later interpolation uh, maybe this has been misrepresented maybe or is there a cultural thing that you're missing right yeah like I know that the the Okay, this is this is one that Micah and I have had a conversation about that uh, where was a thing where he and I were disagreeing because, um, but like there's, I know one of the things people have difficulty with is Jesus talking about divorce, right? Mm-hmm. And like my view on it is, well, in that culture, in that time, women could never be the ones who requested divorce. Only men, like men could divorce their wives, but women couldn't divorce their husbands. And women couldn't own property. And so if a man divorced his wife, he was abandoning her to poverty. If she had children to take care of her, you know, grown children who to take her in, then she could survive. But otherwise she was going to be begging and possibly homeless. And so Jesus saying, no, you can't just, you know, divorce your wife all willy nilly. Well, that's to me, that's talking about, um, about spousal abandonment. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can completely see that viewpoint. And one of the things we have to remember is, as I see it, no matter how inspired something is, it still has to be considered in its context and in its time. Uh, and the thing to do with these things that are from such a different context is to try and look at the underlying, what what's driving them, what are they trying to change about their context what direction does that point you in 
the, the, the biggest thing that would stop me saying that in those terms, the, the, the idea that a Christian is someone who tries to follow and learn from Jesus, the biggest thing that would stop me saying that if we have that definition that I'm a Christian is that there's just nothing particularly special about Jesus for me in that I find similar inspiration in a lot of sources, some sacred, some not. So I don't privilege the idea of Jesus of Nazareth as a particular teacher, but he is a teacher and a valuable teacher. But the thing that helps us with that context is what the early friends were saying is opening our hearts to the spirit that gave forth the scripture rather than just looking at the text. I think I, I have I have one friend who said that the way he views um, a often similar ethics of various faiths is that to him that's proof of the universality of the spirit and of uh, the light and all that because and and that to him is proof of God because. God is finding ways to speak through all these different faiths. And um, it would be harder for him to believe in God if, uh, if, if the ethics were drastically different across, like if, if there were, you know, religions that were like, lying is awesome. Cheating is awesome, you know, because then that, the, the fact that that's not the case, like makes him, like proof that there is a single source that it's all emanating from yeah yeah and i i would agree that there is a single source i just don't think i can personally yeah i can't personally conclude much about what that source is it might be sometimes i like to return to i can't remember any of it to quote but in fox's writings he talked about turning inward with the spirit and looking inside himself and seeing the capacity for all crimes in himself. And for me, this is, this is where dualism comes into my faith. The idea of good versus evil is that there is in us a, if you will, a divine principle, but there is also in us, in a sense, a diabolic principle that we all have an innate capacity for goodness and we all have an innate capacity for great evil. And that's what being attentive to the spirit helps us with is letting that divine side out and keeping the diabolical side down. Mm-hmm. I know in Barclay's Apology, he writes about them as being uh, the seed of Christ and the seed of the serpent. And, uh, you know, the way he talks about them growing and, and flourishing really is similar to the, the yeah. parable of the two wolves and, you know, got the, which wolf wins the wolf feed. Um, so, which, you know, it's interesting that that sort of same analogy pops up in different 
cultures as well. Yep, yep. Now, you know, see, I see it as a perfectly plausible hypothesis that there's this thing in us that, you know, I'm definitely metaphysical about this. I think there is something more than the basic physical world we understand, and that's why we can connect in this way when we're joined in worship together. But that there is something. Which non-theist right because i know there's some non-materialists yeah i mean well. there are some non-theists who are very strictly materialist yeah, so I, and I there are some who are uh, uh, very metaphysical more so than me there are some who are very mystical and uh, it gets a bit new age sometimes um Quakers here because keep in mind that the biggest upsurgence in Quakerism in the U.S. Um, was during the Vietnam War when all the hippies joined. Uh, we had a similar thing, of course, with um, a lot of uh, women coming because they'd met Quakers at Greenham Common um, and wanted to see what it was all about. And I don't know how many ended up staying. Some found that it was all a, a, a bit not political enough for them. I imagine it would be more political given where they, uh, where they met people, but uh, that, uh, you know, some stayed and it's part of what gives us this, this, this rich tapestry of different backgrounds and different ways people came into the faith. But the, the, how to put this, whatever it is, we have these good and bad divine and diabolical, these different principles. And this is something that is part of us, whether it's connected to some outside entity with personality or not. And this is another one of the things that you see consistently popping up in different faiths and mythologies, where these mm -hmm. faiths do have personifications, they often have some degree of dualism, or if it gets more complex when you're into real polytheistic faiths in that, that, you know, there's more than two and some are a bit good and some are a lot good and some are a bit bad and some are a lot bad. Or, <laughs> but this idea of there being this external good and evil principles is potentially, hypothetically, could just be people's attempt to understand what's going on in themselves. Or it could be really looking at an, an, an objective reality that there really are these outside entities. I don't claim to have definite knowledge of this, but it makes sense as a potential explanation that when people have been trying to understand what's going on inside themselves, so when people have been trying to understand what's going on around outside them, they might come up with, one or more gods doing various things to affect the natural world. You've got Zeus sending the thunder, you've got Poseidon sending the storms. And when they're trying to understand what's going on within themselves, they end up doing the same thing. I mean, the Greek pantheon is particularly interesting for this once you get onto the, the minor deities as well, the the different minor gods that are uh, associated with Ares and war. Um, you have godly personifications of fear and of panic, of chaos and of disorder and uh, of 
all the effects that are left in the wake of war when it's over all get these personifications. So I can understand that people would try and personify the things they struggled with in themselves. And then, of course, there's always the uh, theory that the fact that people believe things makes them true, the, uh, the Discworld approach. Oh, I was going to say American Gods. <laughs> well, there's two good authors there. Pick one. It doesn't really matter. But, yeah, the, the, the idea that belief alters reality, maybe it does. Maybe all of these figures that people believe in have some objective existence because we've given it to them. I've never met one that I know of, but who knows? Oh, we should we should absolutely do an episode at some point about the uh, personification of of or the anthropomorphization or whatever the 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 idea of spirits because I know that like uh, friends do have a history of uh, especially with talk about the Lamb's War of talking about the spirit of things like the spirit of jealousy or spirit of um, you know spirit of war or just talking about uh, mm. spiritual warfare which involves like kind of requires personifying various evils but uh, you know people vary in the extent to which they think of those as just metaphors versus literal and I actually have an idea of who to get on here to talk about that oh <laughs> sounds like it'll be fascinating um, is there anything else that you wanted to say about uh, non-theism I think I think uh, we sort of launched off from your definition uh, without really touching on what your what your personal particular uh, belief is. If you I think we've we've that. we've covered some of my personal belief in terms of how I experience and understand worship, that connection of the light within us. But I think perhaps. A good way to explain more of the, the fundamentals of my belief would be briefly talk about what I've since come to recognize may well have been my first conscious contact with the divine. I uh, actually had been visited while I was a, a student uh, by some missionaries from the Church of Latter-day Saints, Mormons. Um, they seem to have quite an active... Yeah, we have quite an active mission here, it seems. So we've got uh, a lot of Americans and the odd German coming over and... In, in like, little name tags. And yeah, and yeah, yeah it seems shirts. to be their, their worldwide uniform. Uh, but... Um, when they, when they visited, I said, look, I would love to hear about your faith, your religion, your church, because I love learning about these things. I've always had a, a deep interest in different approaches to religion. And I said, I really don't think you're going to get anywhere with me, but I would love to learn. 
Uh, and the, uh, the, the the ones who were there when I first said this seemed to be completely on board with this. Some of the ones who replaced them when they rotated out were less so. But anyway, I, I had uh, a couple of them changing who they were, but uh, over a year or so, uh, they kept coming most weeks and uh, talking over things. Uh, I went and uh, sat in on uh, one of their chapel services and uh, they uh, invited me to observe the priesthood meeting afterwards and in between of course there was the Sunday school which everyone goes to just in different groups based on the the, the, the point they've reached in their studies which I actually really approve of but that's a, a topic for another day. Um, or the fact that it the point in studies as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, so I think that the, there was probably something specific for the children because there are special concerns when you're working with children, but it was, apart from children being somewhat separate, um, it was very much to do with the, uh, the, the people who ran the classes working together to figure out who should be in what group and what they should be covering. Um, it was a really interesting way of, of running things. But anyway, the the where this comes down to the the point I'm getting to is the the thing they always ask people to do when they are teaching them is to pray and ask God if what the missionaries are teaching is true. And I said, look, I can't pray. It would be. Uh, dishonest I, I don't believe in something to pray to but i'll do the nearest i can I'll, I'll meditate on it and i did and i had a remarkably profound experience doing so i've tried a few times to put into words the conviction that settled on me during that but to, to, the key point to it boy really was that Yes, what they were teaching was true for them. But what all of these other groups everywhere else were teaching was true also. And that the important part, the important goal of the, the spiritual journey is finding the truth that fits for you because they are all just reflections of a greater and unattainable truth so that is my goal in my my journey part of that is learning as much as i can about all these different ways of thinking about things all these different practices and finding quakers has been a huge step in this journey for me because it is a supportive space for us to make our individual journeys together and at its best it's a space where we can all share our different journeys and try and understand everyone else as they understand themselves without any assumption that everyone has to agree so maybe this journey towards the best reflection of truth I can find for myself will lead me to a path of more certainty somewhere. I, I can't predict that. But it, as there's such a 
huge range of incredibly sincerely held belief in the world. All I can do is take all of those teachings and reflect and seek guidance and see what happens. Great. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. It's been very nice to have you on. Yes, I, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And I think I might actually like to... I don't, we'll see. Maybe maybe we can have you on again some other time to talk about more of the little threads that I think have popped out of this. Sure. I'd be glad to. You can find us on the web at quakerpodcast.org or on Facebook or Twitter.